Hey, welcome online audience. If you're part of the family of hope, we're glad you're joining us. If you're guests, we, we're glad you're just uh, joining us this weekend. Um, while we were shut in and as we've gone through this period of time with the COVID uh, threat, many of you have been watching, binge watching TV series and shows. And one of the shows that Carol and I watched recently was the story of the Chicago Bulls, and it was called The Last Dance. And the idea was that uh, this was going to be the last championship that they would have and that they were going for, and it would be their sixth championship. And it focused really on Michael Jordan. The one thing that you noticed as you watched, there were 10 episodes of this, and uh, when you watched it, Jordan was absolutely laser-focused on winning this championship. And everyone on the team, he made sure everyone on the team was on the same page. There was no division, there was no dividing. Yeah, there were challenges, but they focused on this. And it was this one man who had this focus that drove that team and everybody got on that Michael Jordan train and they did, they won their sixth championship. The Bible talks, and this is where we're gonna go this weekend. The Bible talks about having a divided heart. And a divided heart is like someone who is married but wants to be single. It's like looking at the field next door to yours and thinking it's greener than you. Uh, it's like a Christian whom Jesus just isn't enough. And the Bible describes this divided heart uh, in two different ways. It, 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 or the opposite of divided heart is, is a united heart or a pure heart. So let me read you a couple of passages that kind of can describe this whole idea of what does it mean to have a divided heart or the opposite of that, having a united or a pure heart. Notice the first verse. Look at what it says in Psalm uh, 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And so there's the idea that uh, he's talking about having a united heart, right? Look at what it says in Psalm 51.10. Uh, David writes this. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within, within me. But notice the idea there is that, that David wants to have a pure heart. And, that, and that's the idea of having a united heart or a pure heart. Jesus kind of talks about this in the New Testament where he says, blessed are the pure in heart. This is the purity of heart for they will see God. So this idea of having a pure heart or an un undivided heart is, is really important or a united heart, right? Now in the book of Jonah, we're going to see that Jonah had a divided heart. Um, if we're honest, we kind of have divided hearts at times. And I think we move through that process and we're gonna talk more about that. But this weekend, what we wanna do is we wanna examine some steps that we can take to help us move from a divided heart to an undivided heart or a pure heart. But I wanna read through a passage, uh, the passage from uh, the book of uh, Jonah, chapter four. And I'd love to have you join me in your Bible. So Jonah chapter four, I'll read along and we can read this together. But to Jonah, let me give you the context here. So Jonah was waiting for the destruction of Nineveh, never came. He became angry with God. And so he's sitting up on a hill. He's looking down at the city, waiting for Sodom and Gomorrah. Never happens. The destruction never happens. And so this is his reaction in verse 1. 
okay? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said when I was still at home? Now, this is interesting to me. Notice what he says. He says, this is what I said even. So this is something that I just kind of caught this last week, that Jonah was debating God before he even fled to Tarshish. He kind of had this argument going on with God beforehand because he says here, he says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? So he had this ongoing argument with the Lord, and then he tried to run. But notice what happens next. He says this. This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, Take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy over the plant. Now, this is kind of ironic to me. He's happy over a plant. He's sad over a whole city. And this is kind of the point of the whole passage. But look what happens next. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, and he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it, is, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang overnight and died overnight. And should I not be concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? In other words, they're morally just, just they don't get it. They're just not understanding. And then so many animals. All right, so how was... How was Jonah's heart divided? Well, we've talked about this, and we said that Jonah's nationalism led to his racism. That he hated the Ninevites, he hated the Assyrians, and he wanted their destruction. And uh, his fear was that the, a healthy Assyrian nation, a healthy city of Nineveh, was a threat to his, his people. And so he, he wanted them to die. And so this threat being taken away and them repenting and God withholding his wrath caused him to want to die. Now, why is that? Because Jonah had two loves. And we call these loves idols. He had two things that he had that were really important in his life. Jonah's idol was safety and prosperity for for himself and for his people. He wanted to know that his people and himself, that they would be safe. And so Jonah had turned away from God and he served his own God of safety and security. And when his comfort and security was threatened, his life began to fall apart and he wanted to die. So the question is, this is what we want to talk about for a minute. 
What's an idol? What's an idol? We talk about idols. We think of these things that uh, other people have in Africa or South America or in Asia uh, that they put on, uh, you know, a stand or an altar and they, they worship and they bow down to it. That's not what we're talking about. An idol is anything other than God that you lean on for purpose and meaning, for security, for satisfaction in life. It is something that many of us, uh, it could be a lot of things. It could be a relationship that you have. It could be your idol could be, you know, wanting to have this perfect family or raising children. Uh, your idol could be your job and the performance and the, the perks that you get from your job or the power you get or the recognition you get from your job. It could be your achievements. It could be money. It could say, you know, my idol is that I have money because with money I can provide safety and security and satisfaction in my life. It could be your health. You know, many people's idol is their health. And when that gets threatened, their life begins to fall apart. You know what? It could even be your freedom. Let's just stop there for a minute. It's interesting to me, and we're going to talk, Marty's going to talk about that next weekend. But freedom in America is very interesting. Freedom in America says, I, if freedom means I can do anything I want. And I want to propose to you that the Bible says something very diametrically opposed to that. The Bible says that freedom comes when we give our lives to someone else or something else. Freedom comes when we give our lives to our creator. That's what the Bible says. So we're like, the, you know, we're like a string, but if we don't have a kite to hook it to, it will never soar, right? So in that sense, that's freedom. Now, here's, here's the thing. Think about this too, and here's another quick application. In a marriage, many people think that uh, the more freedom I have, the better the marriage. That's not true. In fact, what you'll find is this. The more that you have, that you give each other freedom to do whatever you want and not commit to each other, the less of a close relationship you'll have. The more that you commit to one another, the more that you submit to one another, the, more, the deeper your relationship will go. And so the point is this. If you want to have really deep, loving relationships, you have to give up freedom. But as you give up that freedom, you find a wealth of love. But Marty's going to kind of flesh that out a little bit more about freedom. But I just want you to see that something as simple as pursuing freedom can become an idol. All right, here's the definition. Uh, you make someone or something else an idol when you take a good thing, and they're not bad things, they're generally good things, and you make them God things. You take something that that is a good thing in and of itself, but you make it so big that it becomes God in your life. Your idol is your Lord, becomes your Lord or your God. You follow it. You give it your time, your talent, your money. And when it gets threatened, your life will unravel. And that's what was happening to Jonah. His life began to unravel because his idol was being challenged. Rebecca Pippard, who wrote a great book, Out of the Salt Shaker, Into the World, she wrote this, and I want to read you this quote. I think it's just an amazing quote. She says this, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And that could be a good thing, but we've made it a God thing. All right. Let me ask you a question. 
What is it? Let's just pause for a minute. What is it in your life that you must have to be happy? What is it in your life that you have to have it? Without this, your life has no meaning or purpose to go on. And if, if, you, if, if, if something came up really quickly, that may be your idol. So the question is, and this is where we want to spend the rest of the time, we're going to go very quickly through these points. How do we heal a divided heart? How do we heal a divided heart? Three points, real, real quick points. Number one, you don't heal a divided heart overnight. It takes a lifetime. It, it, there's a process of healing a heart. There's a process of this purity. There's a process uh, of, of doing this. So what was, what was God really saying to Jonah? It's kind of interesting what God was saying. He, God was essentially saying to Jonah, Jonah, you're not weeping over what I weep over. What breaks me up doesn't break you up. What concerns me doesn't concern you. Now, your love is always flowing at the first part of your life. When you become a Christian, many times your life begins to, uh, boy, I just am glad that I'm not going to hell, right? And your life flows from, you know, it kind of is always going inward. You're constantly worried about yourself. You're always uh, weeping over your own problems. If you, know, if you had a song that could describe your life, it would be poor, poor, pitiful me. And so everything that God has to do is about you, right? Help me and do me, you know, you know fix me and be there for me. And so we may come to God with that very needy uh, at first, that needy personality and that needy way. And we don't want to go to hell. But hopefully then we begin to grow in our faith. And you begin to understand what it means to love God and to love others. And hopefully, little by little, you become a person that God designed you to be. But it takes a lifetime. It takes a long time. Now hopefully you'll get to a place where you'll serve God. Not for what he can do for you, but just for who he is. And you think about that for your kids. Um, there's, a, there's a turning point when your kids don't want you for something. They just want you to be with you. They just want to be with you. And that's a change in the relationship. There's a maturity in the relationship there. Uh, hopefully we grow to a point where we pursue him not for our own selfish purposes, but to serve him and to serve others. Now, that doesn't mean we won't go to him when we're struggling. We need help. But generally speaking, we're not just looking within. We're looking without. We're looking towards others. In fact, I will say this. You'll find your greatest joy, purpose, and meaning, security, and significance in serving him and looking to him. Okay, so that's the first point. That it's not an overnight change. It's going to take a lifetime. Here's the second point. Your divided heart must be constantly refined by God. God is, God is going to take you out of your comfort zone, and he's going to get your attention. He's not going to allow you to just sit and stew. And so what he's doing here with Jonah is with the plant that he provided and the worm that he provided, he's putting Jonah through some personal trials because he's trying to get the attention of his prophet. And God will allow us to go through trials and tribulations to get our attention. Now, God took Jonah out of his comfort zone by taking away the plant. And he wanted to, get, uh, he wanted to teach him a lesson. And many times God does that with us. He'll, 
He'll take us out of our comfort zone because he wants to teach us a lesson. So what I want to do, and I don't have this passage for you because I didn't want to have too many passages up there. But uh, I want to read a passage from uh, Revelation. And this is to the church of Laodicea. So in the first part of the book of Revelation, there's three or seven letters to the churches. Um, and the, the, the church of Laodicea is one of those churches. And this is what it says. Let me just read it. This uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And then I want to make a few observations. And we're talking about this whole refining process that God uses in our life. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, but neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And then it skips down. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So there's a couple of things, observations I want to make from this passage of Scripture. The first one is this. Notice the problem of the church of Laodicea. They're divided. They have a divided heart. And um, he says, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, you know. And uh, you're unfocused. You're lukewarm. That's the first thing you see. So this, this, this divided heart is going hot and heavy within uh, the church. Hot and cold and heavy, but, but that nonetheless. Notice the second thing. Notice God's prescription. He says, You'll, you, you need to be refined by fire. Now, when you think about it, and gold is one of those metals that has to be heated, it has to be just brought to a high temperature so that the impurities can be taken out of it, and it can become more and more pure and get to be impure. It's only through fire that that happens. And so it says here that God disciplines those he loves. What I want to tell you is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's not going to allow you to stay in your own uh, sorry state. He is going to transform you and change you. And sometimes that's going to be through discipline, through refining. And that's a hard thing sometimes. John in his gospel talks about pruning. And sometimes God does that in our lives. He doesn't do it to hurt us. He does it to help us. He does helps us. He wants us to grow. And then here's the next thing. If you belong to him, he won't allow you to live at peace with two loves. He will force you. Uh, he will pick and prod away at uh, the idols and cause them to fail you. And this is how the purifying process happens. So this is what God does. Whatever it is in your life that you're looking and you're, you're, you, you, you say, I have to have this. And it's not God. And you've made a good thing a God thing. God will begin to chip that away. Maybe it's your health, your family, whatever it is. And you'll find that when that happens, your life, you'll say, what is going on? I just feel like my life's falling apart. And God is chipping away at those things because he will not let you live with those loves. Here's the good news. The good news is the last verse. And we often use this verse as a verse of evangelism saying that Jesus wants to invite you. It's not written to unbelievers. It's written to believers. And what he's saying here is that Jesus invites you to change your life. 
You could change your life today. You can repent and turn today. Essentially, that's what he's saying to all these churches. You need to repent. You need to turn. You need to turn to me. And when you turn your life, he says, I stand at the door and knock. You have to decide you're going to open the door of your life for him and allow him to come in and transform and change your life. And some of you are like Jonah chapters 1, where you're running from God and you need to stop. You need to open the door and you need to let Jesus come into your life and transform you. So this, this is an incredible passage and it talks about that refining process that God wants to do in our lives. Here's the third point. Here's the last thing I want to say. Your divided heart will only be healed by his divine grace. Now the question is, did Jonah ever come to a place of accepting God's grace and mercy for others? Well, we don't know for sure. The book ends, ends rather, uh, you know, it kind of ends like the story of the two sons, the prodigal sons. And when the father's out talking to the older son, we don't know what the older son finally did, right? Jonah, the book of Jonah ends kind of the same way. We don't know kind of what Jonah did. But here's the thing. We do have an account of Jonah's life, how he ran from God, how he uh, was in the belly of the great fish, how he got the message the second time and went to the city. We, we see his tantrum on the hill and all of that. And so many scholars, and I think that they may be onto something, say, well, where did he get, where did, the, if Jonah wrote this account, why would he put it, you know, why would he include it? Because it's not very, you know, it's not a great picture of Jonah. It's not a great uh, portrayal of who he was. And I think that's the point. Here's what I think is going on. I think Jonah, or whoever wrote it, and Jonah passed this, this, the whole story on to whoever wrote it. I think this is what's going on. I think Jonah finally came to a point where he came to his senses and he repented. And I think Jonah came to a place where he understood the magnitude of God's grace and mercy and it broke him up. It destroyed him. It, it wrecked his life to the point that he, he, he kind of just said like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where he saw the holiness of God. Woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He came to his senses. His heart became more, much more pure. And I think he was transformed. In other words, I don't think Jonah would share this story with all the warts, with all the issues, unless he wanted to show what a wretch, lost sinner he was. And what I mean by that is this, and I've said this before, there's no bragging beneath the cross. The ground is level beneath the cross. It doesn't matter what you look like, what the color of your skin is, whether you're a man or a woman, it doesn't matter if you're old or young, educated or not. The ground is level. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. There's nothing for us to brag about. When we get to heaven, nobody's going to be bragging and saying, you know, I did this and this and this, and that's why I'm in heaven. No one's going to brag about that. In fact, I think it's going to be the opposite. I think people are going to say, I was the worst sinner. You know, Paul kind of says that, of sinners of whom I'm the worst if there's going to be any bragging, it's going to be how bad of a sinner we were and how gracious God was to us, right? 
I think that's the point. We have nothing to brag about. We were lost. We were helpless and hopeless sinners. We don't brag about our accomplishments. We brag on the cross. We brag on God's grace and mercy. And uh, as we see our sorry, our sorry state and his mercy and grace grows before our eyes, we brag on Jesus, how Jesus saved a sinner that didn't deserve it. And I think that's why Jonah gave us the story that he gave us. I'm going to tell you a story and I'll close with this. Many of you have uh, read uh, Pascal. He was a philosopher and a mathematician. And when he died, they, uh, he was 17th, in the 17th century. Um, when he died, they found a little booklet sewn into his shirt. And in this little booklet, in his journal, he had a little journal. And uh, this is what he wrote. This is 1654. He, he wrote this. The year of grace, 1654, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past midnight, fire. And then he goes on to say this, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers and of the wise. He can only be found in ways taught in the gospel. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy, fire. And Pascal describes an abstract God as his personal Savior. Let me ask you two questions. We'll close with these. Have you ever experienced this life-changing grace and mercy of God? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you've called upon the Lord and you said, Lord, I'm nothing but a sinner, and unless you come into my life, I'm dead. Have you been holding on to some idols around you and hoping that they would bring you joy and happiness and purpose and meaning. And you find that to a certain extent they work, but to a certain extent they fall very much short and they're starting to crumble. Your health is crumbling. Your relationships are crumbling. Your finances, your accomplishments, your achievements, they just don't seem to mean that much. Why not give your life to the one who made you in his image, who has a purpose for your life. He's the only one that can give you ultimate security, satisfaction, and significance in your life. And then the last question. Do you have some idols as a follower of Jesus Christ that you need to root out? Is there some area of your life that God is working on right now and says, you're putting way too much weight on this. You're making a good thing too much of a God thing in your life, and I'm going to pick away at it until... It rocks your world. And maybe right now your world is getting rocked because you had this security and now that security is being kind of chipped away at. And God says, I will not allow you to have two lovers. You need to look to me. I'm the one that, is, that designed you and I'm the one that's going to provide what you need. I want to lead you in prayer and uh, hopefully this will be a moment of soul searching, heart searching. Because what God wants is he wants united hearts. He wants pure hearts. And yes, it is a process. There is a refining that goes on there. But in the end, God wants what's best for us. Can we trust him with that? Let's pray.
Help us, Father, because there are many idols out there. There are many good things out there that you have provided for us, and we've taken them and made them more than, than you ever intended them to be in our lives. I pray for those, Father, who have had their backs turned on you, and maybe today is the day they're going to turn, stop, and turn to you and give their lives to you. Maybe they'll pray a prayer like this. Dear Father, I realize I'm a sinner and I'm lost. I have nothing to brag about. All my good works, all my accomplishments are nothing. I realize that unless you save me through your son Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, I'm dead. I ask you to come into my life and to save me. And Father, if they prayed a prayer like that, I pray they would let somebody know. For the rest of us, Father, who prayed a prayer like that, who, under, who, who have come to grips with, with our sin and, and, and seen glimpses of your grace and mercy in our lives, help us to see more and more of that. Help us to be so amazed and so in awe of your grace and mercy that we would not look to other lovers that we would not trust them because they will be crushed under the weight of our, our trust. But we can place our full weight and our full trust in you. We thank you for that. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has given us life by giving his life. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray.